to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we are talking about Are There Errors in the Bible? Part 4. It's one of the tough questions that I decided to deal with uh, when I set up this series on answering tough questions. And at first I thought, okay, we're just going to kind of deal with it surface like, are there errors in the Bible? And then I started digging into it. I found four different categories of possible errors. I thought, well, we'll deal with two categories a night and finish it in two weeks. And we did the first week, and it's like we only did one category. So it's turned into a four-week mini-series in the midst of this major series on answering tough questions. So tonight is, Are There Errors in the Bible? Part 4. The previous ones, we talked about errors in content in the sense of, are the right books in the Bible? We say the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by him. But what determined, how was it determined? How did people know that the 66 books that we currently have in our Bible are the ones that God inspired and the ones that were left out are not inspired? Because there are other books that were around when the Old Testament was recognized as inspired. There were other books that were around when the New Testament was put together and recognized as inspired. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to it online. The second one was errors in transmission. What I mean by that is, can we be sure that the manuscripts were copied accurately? Even if we have the right books and they were inspired, we don't have any of the original copies of any of the Bible books. They have been copied through thousands of years, and you've probably heard that. We can't trust the Bible. It can't be accurate. It's been copied so many times. It's been corrupted down through the years. And we discovered in that um, topic that night that, yes, it has been copied over thousands and thousands of years, but it has not been corrupted, and there's a lot of proof that has not been corrupted, so that we can know that the Bible we have today is the Bible that God put together for us throughout the years. And again, if you missed that, you can go back and listen to it. And then the third one was errors and facts. Is the Bible accurate compared to science, compared to history, compared to archaeology? And we had a good discussion about that a couple of weeks ago. So tonight, we're going to wrap up this Are There Errors in the Bible with this thought, errors in consistency. Does the Bible contradict itself? And perhaps you've heard that one too. That's probably the second most common, or maybe it's on the same level is, well, the Bible's corrupt because it's been copied so much, but there are contradictions. The Bible is full of contradictions. You've heard that, right? The Bible's full of contradictions. And so we're going to talk about that. Are there contradictions in the Bible? What do you think? No. You're all like, is that a trick question? No. <laughs> no. Are there things that seem to be contradictions? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's why people say that there are. Um, we, as believers, uh, whether it's based just totally on faith or it's because we've studied it or some kind of mixture, we'd say there aren't contradictions in the Bible, but we willingly admit that there are things in the Bible that seem like contradictions. You know, if somebody says to you, no, I can't believe in God, I can't believe in the Bible, There's, the Bible's full of contradictions, as I've said many times, say, well, can you name one? And a lot of times they can't, but a lot of times they can but usually if they can't name one, their real issue isn't so much with the contradictions as the fact that they think they have a reason why they don't have to have faith. Okay? And um, 
My purpose tonight, as we look at the different reasons why people think there are contradictions and what the explanations for those possible contradictions are, that it'll give us a foundation that'll open up conversations with other people. You know, if, if somebody says, well, there's contradictions in the Bible, well, name one. Well, I can't really think of one. Well, go home, research it, and come back to me, but be prepared. Because when I was studying for this, I've got all my resources and all that kind of stuff. And I just typed into Google, did a Google search on Bible contradictions. And it brings up tons and tons of articles. And they seem to be equally divided between people that say the Bible is full of contradictions. And here's a list of them. And it's a long list. And people that say, no, there's things that seem like contradictions. And here's why people say that. And here's some explanations. So if somebody wants to go looking, they'll find a list of things that seem to be contradictions, all right? Can you think of any examples? Have you had any that you've wrestled with or you've heard about things that seem to be contradictions in the Bible itself? Yeah. John? Uh, there's one in uh, St. John. And what was that? No, that, oh, yeah. we don't need to take that much time to look it up. All right, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think we talked about that when we dealt with uh, lessons from the upper room. You know, but that is true because, you know, you have this what seems to be a very short conversation. And Peter, one of the disciples, asked Jesus where he's going. He had come, and then later he says, well, nobody has asked me where I've gone. Okay. And uh, we, that's not one of the ones we're going to deal with tonight. But you can research it. But anyway, <laughs> there's a good answer for that. All right. But that's an example. Can anybody think of any other examples of things that are supposed to be contradictions in the Bible? I'm going to be giving you a lot as we go through. But I was just wondering if there's any particular ones that you guys have wrestled with or that have been brought to you. Okay. By the time we get done tonight, you might say, I didn't realize there were so many things that could be contradictions. And I'm only going to be dealing with a small amount, but we're going to be dealing with the major categories of, of supposed contradictions and what the explanations are for them. Okay. The thing is, is we don't have to be afraid of these difficulties. Okay. And there's nothing to be gained by ignoring them or invading them or denying them because God's truth can stand on its own. And every single issue that there is, every single Bible difficulty, every possible contradiction, if you truly study it, there are reasons for why it seems to be that way. We need to study it. We don't need to ignore it. As I said a few minutes minutes ago, it's you know we want to dig into this. We want to take the time to look at it. So it can strengthen our faith so that we can use it to answer other people's questions or use it as an opportunity to witness to them. Yeah, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to use that example. John, John asked me way back at the beginning of the series, I got a question for you. Why is it that Jesus said, just like Jonah in the belly of the whale, he'll be three days and three nights, you know, in the earth, you know, and it's like, well, if he was crucified on Friday and rose again on Sunday, that's not three days and three nights. That's one of the ones we will deal with tonight, because I promised him we would. So anyway, let me just say before we dig in, there's a lot of great resources. You can look it up on the Internet. Again, you've got to kind of weed things out. Okay, but I'll just show you a couple of resources I have, a couple of books I have. If you ever want to borrow them, you're welcome to. This one's really old. I had it in the box of my garage and some kind of bug ate part of the cover. But it's called Alleged Discrepancies. This thing, I think, was written before I was born. But the guy that wrote it tried to make sure, tried to cover every possible discrepancy in the Bible in this particular book. Um, this one is called The Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties by Gleason Archer. Very, very good book. And then this one is called When Critics Ask by Norman Geisler and Thomas Howe. I only show this to you because if 
you have an interest in this, if it stirs an interest in this, this is the kind of thing that's kind of fun to read, and it's organized by going through the Bible. So if you come across a passage that seems to be a contradiction, you just look up that passage, and boom, there's some answers for you. If you want to take a look at them after service or some other time, just let me know, and you are welcome to do that. Okay? Oh, also, if you've got a really good study Bible, and you're reading a passage, and it seems like a contradiction... There probably will be an explanation, at least an abbreviated, short explanation at the bottom of the page or in the footnotes, wherever they are, about a possible explanation of that contradiction. All right? So first of all, we're going to deal with some basic issues and then ten possible explanations for contradiction. There is a typo on your note sheet. It says basis issues. It should be basic issues. So anyway... Basic issues. Some basic issues, and, and by the way, I'll ask some questions along the way. You're welcome to ask questions and stuff, but I'm going to have to do most of the talking tonight. It's just kind of the subject, nature of the subject. Um, but anyway, some basic issues as we deal with these supposed contradictions of the Bible. Number one, there are many seeming contradictions in the Bible. So the last thing you want to do when somebody says, oh, there's contradictions in the Bible, say, no, there's none. Okay. A good answer would be, you know what, there's a lot of things that seem to be a contradiction, but I believe there aren't. There's good reasons for what seems to be a contradiction, because there really are many. I I came across um, one website, it was just, it was really sad for me to read, because it was basically from a humanist website saying, this is all the reasons why I don't believe in God and why I don't believe the Bible is God's word. And it was just so sad. And as I was reading through, it's like, these are really serious, important issues and questions I saw through most of them. I knew the answers for most of them, but, but it's like there are so many people that don't have faith, you know, and this is the issue. There are many seeming, and again, the seeming is in quotes because they seem to be, but they're not. The second thing is, if there is a reasonable explanation for a contradiction, it's not truly a contradiction. You know, we deal with contradictions in our lives all the time. You hear somebody say something, and then later you hear them say something else. It's like they just contradicted themselves. But if you talk to them and you understand in context what they said both times, it's like, oh, that makes sense. We see this in science. How do we get most of the knowledge that we have about science, about the way the world works, all that kind of stuff? It's because of investigation. People would see, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. These two things, but they seem to contradict. And they say, oh, that explains it, you know? So if there's a reasonable explanation for a contradiction, it is not truly a contradiction. For several of the, quote, contradictions in the Bible, there are several several possible explanations. And there may be, it may be the type of situation like, well, I don't know exactly for sure which of the reasons is the right one, why it says it that way. But there are several logical reasons of why it may say that that way. And as long as there's a logical, reasonable explanation, it's not literally a contradiction because there's a lot of different ways to explain it away. John would probably notice as a police officer, you know, investigating an accident or whatever, you got all these conflicting things, you know, and you're investigating. And then as you get the whole story put together, it's like, oh, that makes sense now. Yeah. All right. Number three, just because I don't understand something doesn't mean it can't be understood. I think we all are probably humble enough to realize that we don't know everything. But sometimes people approach the Bible like, if there's a question about something and you can't explain it to me, then it must be false. You know, we've got this principle that isn't always lived up to in the United States, that a person is innocent until proven guilty. You know, 
And that's the way people should treat the Bible, but they don't. It's like it's guilty unless you can prove it's innocent. You know, it's, it's got contradictions. It's got problems unless you can prove it doesn't. All right? But there are so many things, again, in the area of science that people did not understand. Things that people believed that were wacky. We talked about some of those with the Bible and science, you know. People believing that um, the, uh, the, sur- the sun rotated around the earth. And now we know it's the earth that rotates around the sun, you know. Um, people that believed in spontaneous generation. That means that things can just kind of pop into existence because they would see meat that was left out and all of a sudden there's a bunch of flies. It's like, ooh, you leave meat out and all of a sudden flies just spontaneously appear. And it's like, no, flies have been around, laid the eggs. You know, but it's because they did the study that they discovered that. And the same thing is true um, for things in the Bible. All right? And then the fourth basic issue is most contradictions can be resolved by an honest study of the passages in context. Too many times, people just want to take a verse, take a fact, take a story, rip it out, and say, there's a contradiction. Now, Christians do the same sort of thing, but in a different way. They like to rip out verses and stuff and make promises out of it. (laughs) That's why I always tell you, God's made some wonderful promises, but make sure you understand them in context and they really apply to you so you can claim them. And there's a ton of promises we can claim, but there are times people claim promises that God never intended for us to claim because they weren't for us. All right. So that's just some basic thing about contradictions. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about 10, and this will cover most of them, but there may be other contradictions, quote, contradictions that wouldn't fit in one of these categories, but most of the, quote, contradictions that people would raise about things in the Bible will fit in one of these categories, all right? These are explanations for contradictions, all right? Why is it that people would see a contradiction? The first one is this. The entire context has not been examined. The entire context has not been examined. Now, I'm going to give you a silly one first, but this is how it gets sometimes. People actually claim this. Did you know that the Bible says in Psalm 14, 1, that there is no God? It does. Literally, I'm quoting. Psalm 14, 1 says there is no God. That's not the whole verse, though. The verse says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. Now, that sounds kind of silly, right? But, I mean, there are people that they do that, all right? But there are other ones that may seem a little bit more serious, okay? I've got a lot of scriptures on here that we're not going to read, but I've got them on there so you can look at them later. I've got on there Jeremiah 32, verses 1 to 5, and Ezekiel 12, verses 8 to 13, and 2 Kings 25, verses 6 to 7. And it's the story of the last king of Judah before Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and conquered them and carried them into captivity. There are a number of prophets that were active at this time. There was Jeremiah, who was in Judah, and there was Ezekiel, who was already in Babylon because uh, Nebuchadnezzar had already taken some people into captivity and left some behind. He says, okay, you guys behave, I'll leave you here. But King Zedekiah rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar came with his army. He set siege and ended up conquering Jerusalem, leveling the temple, all this kind of stuff. Well, there were prophecies that were given by uh, Jeremiah and by Ezekiel that said that King Zedekiah would see Nebuchadnezzar face to face and be taken to Babylon. But then there was another prophecy that Zedekiah would never see Babylon. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? 
How can you have two prophecies that said that Zedekiah will be captured? He'll see Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be taken to Babylon. But then you've got another prophecy that says he will never see Babylon. Well, when you read the story of what happened in 2 Kings 25, Nebuchadnezzar came to Judah with his army, conquered them, captured Zedekiah as he was trying to slip out, the, literally trying to slip out the back door of Jerusalem. He killed all his children in front of him and then gouged out his eyes. So he was taken to cap- into captivity in Babylon, but he never saw it because he was blind. But people that don't read the whole story don't get the whole context. It's like, well, see, there's a, comp- uh, a contradiction there. So, so there's a lot of examples of contradictions that come about because people haven't taken the time to examine the whole context. Okay? The second one is this, is that something has changed between accounts. You got two different accounts. One account says this, another one says that. It's a contradiction. But something has changed between the two. Let me give you an illustration just from um, something that might be true. It's not true of me. But let's say that five years ago I said, I really trust Polly. I tried to choose the name of somebody I don't even know. Okay. Say, five years ago I said, I really trust Polly. But then yesterday I said, I don't trust Polly. Is that a contradiction? Something's changed, hasn't it? What's changed? Nobody knows what's changed, but Polly did something. I don't trust her anymore, right? But both statements are true, okay? So even though they're totally opposite, they're not a contradiction. And there are times that people will cherry-pick verses out of the Bible and say, see, there's a contradiction. And a great example is in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, when God is creating everything, every day he ends the day by saying... It is good. And on the last day, he says, it is very good, right? Genesis 1. But yet, in Genesis 6, 6, it says that he regretted that he had made man. And if God can't change, why is there a contradiction? Is that a, is that a contradiction? Something has changed. You know, it's only been, it's only five, five and a half, six chapters, but there's about 1,500 years in there. What changed between Genesis 1 when, 1 when God is very satisfied with the world and everything in it, and Genesis 6 when he regrets that he made man? What's changed? Sin. <laughs> you know, all the sin. And it got to the point where pretty much everybody in the whole world was giving themselves totally over to sin except for Noah and his family. All right. So, something has changed between accounts. Okay. Not only that, so this is similar, but some contradictions are because one of the speakers is lying. All right. You know, in Genesis uh, chapter three, um, it says that if Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will die. But Genesis chapter three also says that if they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they shall not die. Both of both those statements are in that chapter. But who's making the statements? God says you're going to die. Satan says you will not die. Okay? Yes. Is that a contradiction? No, it's two different people that are talking. And Satan's lying. And you've got other examples of that in the Bible where there are people that are saying things that are not true. That may be contradicting something that's said somewhere else, but it's because they're lying. All right? So, anyway. That's the changes between those two accounts. All right. The third one. The correct meaning or application of teaching is not understood. 
the correct meaning or application of a teaching is not understood. I'm going to give you an example, and we're not going to dig deeply into it because we can do a whole Bible study on it. But a really big one that even theologians have, ba- have wrestled with is an area where they say that Paul and James disagree with each other. Does any, it's a trivia question, but does anybody know what, what that area is where they say that Paul and James disagree with each other? What did you say, Carlton? That's not, but, but you sure know a lot. <laughs> what were you going to say? Did somebody, I thought I heard somebody over there say something. No? John, you want to take a stab at it? Faith and works. Paul says we are saved by faith and not by works. What does James tell us? You think you're saved by faith? Let me see your works. Okay? Now, you, when you study both Paul and James in context, they're saying the same thing. Paul says when you are saved, you are saved by faith. It's not by works. Okay? But James says if you truly are saved, you will have works. And true faith will be demonstrated by your works. But there have been those who say that's a contradiction. You know, Paul's teaching this doctrine of you can't be saved by works. It's only by faith. And James is saying, no, you're being saved by works. Yeah, Paul talks about, you know, even Paul said, he says, do you think that you can be saved and keep living your life? I'm paraphrasing. Keep living your life in sin? No. You know, they both say the same thing. But people say it's a contradiction. It's because they have not dug into the correct meaning or the application of those teachings. Okay. The fourth one is this. Quotes are not always direct or complete. Quotes are not always direct or complete. Today, if we quote someone, whether we're quoting them in a speech or we're quoting them in a document or we're quoting them for maybe an assignment at school or whatever, we're expected, we're going to put that quote in quotation marks and we're going to, we're going to put a little uh, uh, footnote or endnote or something to say where we got it from and we're going to do everything we can to get it word for word exactly right, right? They didn't do that back then, all right? They didn't even have quotation marks. But, you know, we do the same thing today, too. If you have a whole conversation with somebody, and then you go talk to somebody and say, well, what do they say? You may quote them exactly. You may give them a summary. You may put in your own words the essence of what they said. Well, in the Jewish culture, all of that was totally and completely normal. So there are times, especially in the New Testament, where they're quoting the Old Testament, and they made a habit exactly word for word. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. You know, you know Jesus quotes some, uh, one of the prophets or, or one of the other authors and he quotes one of the prophets, and you actually say, that's not exactly what the prophet said. And people say, that's a contradiction. Well, no, that's just the way they dealt with attributing things to people. Okay? So they don't always use a direct quote or a complete quote. It didn't have to be exact Word for word, that was viable in their culture. And again, it's viable in our culture too. You know, what, is, what does it say? You, you give a summary, okay? Now, one that looks a little bit more like a contradiction is that there are a couple of times in the New Testament when um, someone, I don't know if Jesus actually does this, he may have, uh, but one of the New Testament writers will make a quote and says, just like the prophet Isaiah said, and then what they said, or just like the prophet Jeremiah said, and they'll put this quote out there. But then if you go back and look at it, it's like, wait a minute, Isaiah didn't say that. Ezekiel said that. Or Jeremiah didn't say that. One of the other prophets said that. 
Now, that really does look like a contradiction. Okay? But again, we have to look at the way that they used their understanding of Scripture. You see, Isaiah and Jeremiah are the two most well-known prophets. They're the two longest prophets. And there were times that in their culture, and there's other literature that shows this, that when they were just talking about the prophets in general, they would just say, just like Isaiah says, or just like Jeremiah says. So when you see that, when you read, and so just like Isaiah says this, what they're really saying is, just like it says in the prophets, that saying Isaiah or Jeremiah is just kind of a summary way of saying it's said in the prophets. It's not a contradiction. Now, we got a couple of them in the New Testament. There's a famous story when Jesus is talking to his disciples. And um, he says, who do people say that I am? And they give him a number of different answers. You know, you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. You're, um, you know, Elijah come back. You're some other great prophet or whatever. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. What does Peter say? What is his answer? He says what? You are the Christ. Is that an exact quote? You are the Christ. The son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Is that an exact quote? It depends on which gospel you're reading. Okay? In Matthew 16, 16, it says, You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Barbara, you get extra points. You got Matthew, right? In Mark, it says, You are the Christ. So whoever said that over there, you got points. In Luke, I just preached on this about a month or so ago. It says, You are the Christ of God. Are those contradictions? They all say the same thing with more or less detail. It's like I said, you're having a conversation with something. You're reporting, you know, you could go out of church on Sunday and somebody say, what did Pastor Tim preach about this Sunday? And you start talking about this, that, and the other, and you may not get it exactly right. You won't get it exactly word for word. It's a long thing. You know what I'm saying? But yet you've got the essence, and that's all that they're trying to do there. That's all the authors are trying to do there. That's not a contradiction. Here's another one, okay? The inscription on the cross, what did it say? Okay, let, let, go ahead, Sharon. What did the inscription on the cross say? Jesus, King of the Jews. Is that it? It was in three different languages, yeah, but is that it? Did it just say Jesus, King of the Jews? He said he was the King of the Jews? It depends on your gospel writer, okay? So, in Matthew twenty-seven thirty-seven, it says, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Mark 15, 26 says, the king of the Jews. Luke 23, 38 says, this is the king of the Jews. John 19, 19 says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Are those contradictions? No. The whole thing probably said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Okay? And, but it's just that when that gospel writer was writing it, they weren't trying to get word for word exactly what was on the, but the general gist of what was on there. Okay, so it's not a contradiction. All right? Number five. Different authors have a different focus or method of arrangement. Different authors have a different focus or method of arrangement. You know, we got the four stories of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're called the synoptic gospels. Synop means to see together with. Um, chances are Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke knew about Mark and kind of used that as a basis then to do their own, but each one also had 
other sources that they brought into it. Okay, so there's a lot of similarities between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And John was written like 35, 40 years later, and he probably thought, everybody knows about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to write another gospel, and I'm going to use stuff that they didn't. You know, I'll use some of it, but I'll do a bunch of stuff that they didn't write about. You know, and he had, and each of the gospel writers had a different purpose for writing. Matthew was primarily writing to Jewish people. That's why he quotes the Old Testament a lot. He's trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark is writing to the Romans primarily, to Gentiles. He doesn't quote from the Old Testament near as much, and he keeps it short and sweet and active and something that would appeal to the Romans. And Luke is writing to everybody, so he has a good mixture. John is writing more toward the Greek philosophy background people because he uses these philosophical things and, and all that. kind. Of, they all have different purposes and different audiences in mind. And then, therefore, that may affect how they write certain things. Now, let me give you a, a current illustration, okay, to, to lay the foundation for the example I'm going to give you. You ask a little girl, did you enjoy your meal at Thanksgiving? Yes. What would you have to eat? Oh, we had apple pie and ice cream and turkey and potatoes and all kinds of stuff. Is that accurate? Probably. But does that mean that her parents let her eat the apple pie and the ice cream first? No. Why did she list it first? Why couldn't she get it right? Why couldn't she say we had turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and corn and then we had apple pie and ice cream afterwards? Why did she not say it that way? Her priorities. She was more excited about the apple pie and ice cream. That was more important. The same thing can be true of the gospel writers in particular. If they're writing something about Jesus, you know, that's why if you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke side by side, they got a lot of the similar, but they just kind of add a different order. Okay? None of them claim to be in a chronological order. They're primarily, for the most part, in chronological order. You know, Luke says something similar at the beginning. He says, I wanted to have an ordered account, but he doesn't say that everything is exactly chronological. They had their purposes. They had their themes. They had their messages they were trying to get across. Everything they wrote was true, but the order in which they, what they chose, what they didn't choose, the order they put it in, and how they expressed it, it all went along with how they were trying to write it. So we got one specific example is the order of the temptations of Jesus. If you read the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, you have the temptation to turn the rocks into bread, throw yourself off the temple, bow down and worship me. But if you read the order of temptations in the Luke chapter 4, you've got... Turn the stones into bread, same as Matthew. But then you have, bow down and worship me. And then the third one is throw yourself off the temple. And there are some that would say, well, there's a contradiction. But it's not. They're the same three temptations. They're just in different orders. There's one, I think it's Matthew, that makes it sound like he's trying to tell it in order. But Luke doesn't do that. He just goes and, and, and. And so one or the other may have it in the exact order. The other one chose to swap out the order because of the message they were trying to portray and what they were getting ready to lead into in their book. But there's no contradiction. It just says Jesus was tempted. Here's the three temptations. Now, a trickier one is the genealogy of Jesus. I bet a lot of you love to sit down and just read the genealogy of Jesus out of Matthew 1 and Luke 3, right? Okay? If you compare the genealogies of Jesus from Matthew 1 and Luke 3, there are some similar names, but most of the names are totally and completely different. Okay? Um, uh, Luke goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew only goes back to Abraham. And there's, there, there's, there's parts where they are the same, but then there's names that are skipped, and it's like, that's a contradiction, isn't it? 
It's like, no, it's not. What is the solution? That's a, that's a tricky one, though. Why, why would they not have the same names? Well, there's a couple of different possible. We don't know the exact reason, but there are at least two or three different possibilities of why they have different names. But the most popular one, the one that I think is probably true, won't know for sure till I get to heaven, is that Matthew gives the lineage through Joseph. Now, was Joseph Jesus' father? Yes and no. No, not physically. But yes, as far as the way Jewish people con- uh, considered, you know, paternity and all that kind of stuff, because he took responsibility for him and all that kind of stuff, but not physically. And if you look at Matthew, it says Joseph, who was thought to be the father of Jesus. Okay, it doesn't say that he was, but, you know, Matthew was probably the lineage through Joseph, whereas Luke was probably the lineage through Mary. Were you going to say something, Carlton? Yeah, that was That's what you were going to say. Okay. All right. But then there's other things too. You know, there's this thing in the Bible about leveret marriage, where if a brother dies, his brother uh, takes the wife. And, and so there's this real complex, I think it's a really complicated solution that has to do with all that kind of stuff. And it's like, anyway. But the point is, going back to one of the basic things, as long as there's a logic, re- logical, reasonable solution, it's not a contradiction. And there's a couple of them that explain why um, the genealogies are different. It's not just that there's a contradiction, okay? All right. Number six, there are different ways of calculating numbers or computing time. There are different ways of calculating numbers or computing time. One of these we see in the reigns of kings. Sometimes if you compare some passages um, in the Old Testament, it talks about a certain king that reigned a certain amount of time, and you compare it between kings and chronicles or Samuel and chronicles, it's like they don't exactly line up. What, that's that's got to be a contradiction, right? Not necessarily. There are different ways of computing. So how, do, how can there be different ways of computing things? Two things, okay? Number one, sometimes when they would compute how long a king reigned, they would only report how long they reigned all by themselves. But sometimes they would compute how long they reigned when they co-reigned with their father or with their son. Because there are many instances when a king would get to the end of his reign, he wanted a smooth transition, so he and his son would both be proclaimed king. He'd still be reigning, but then his son would be reigning. And so sometimes they would count that overlapping period in there too. Not only that, but there are some systems under which people would only count a period of time in whole years. Okay. In other words, if a king started reigning in June, the whole rest of that year wasn't even counted. It only from the next year, from January to December, that that counted as a year. And then you got a, a, maybe another half a year at the other end. So you can see that there can be little bits and pieces of discrepancies between some of the records because of different... Now we say, but we don't do that. Well, that's okay. We didn't write it. This is how their culture wrote things down. Okay, How their culture... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's a good modern example. Somebody becomes a king, but their coronation isn't until later. There's all kinds of little factors that can be in, that can be in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. All right. And here's another thing that's really interesting is sometimes you uh, read in the Bible and it talks about a certain month or a certain time of the year, whatever, and um, there were different ways of computing calendar. There were some societies that had more than one calendar. The Jews had two. They had a religious calendar and a civil calendar. They had two New Year's. 
Okay. Gregorian, yeah, the Jewish calendar is different than our calendar, but even in the Jews' own society, you know, when God delivers the Israelites from Egypt, he says, you've got this calendar? Well, from now on, the day I deliver, this is going to be the first month. But you can still celebrate the other first month, too. So so they had two first months. You know, they had one year that went, you know, along with kind of everybody else, and then they had a different one that was a spiritual calendar. And so it depends on which calendar they were using, and because of the way the things be referred to, it could come up like a... A contradiction. Yeah, Veronica. You know, that's a very good example. Um, yeah, how you determine the time of the day. The Jewish people determine the time of the day different than the Romans. You know, the Jewish, and the Jewish determined, Jewish people determine the days differently. For the Jews, the day began at sundown, about six o'clock. Okay? So Saturday actually began Friday night at about six o'clock. All right? And it went until Saturday night, about 6 o'clock. Whereas we go from midnight to midnight. And that's kind of the way the Romans did it too. So when it talked about the third hour of the day, it depends on whether it's talking about the way the Jewish people looked at it or the way the Roman people looked at it. You know, The same thing with the way that it says the, Romans, the fourth watch of the night. It depends on whether it was talking about the way that the Romans did it or the way the Jewish people did it. It could be totally different. Another example that's similar to this, um, I got this on your note sheet here, uh, Jesus and his disciples have that whole discussion about who do people say that I am. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, oh, yeah, and then upon this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell, you know, and, and there's, then he has this discussion about, you know, but I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to die, all that kind of thing. And um, you guys have to be willing to suffer and all that. I've preached on this recently from Luke. But then he says, but there are some that are alive today that will see the coming of the glory of God. And it's like, what does that mean, you know? And there's a couple different possibilities. What most people believe is that it's talking about the transfiguration, which is getting ready to happen. So between that conversation and the transfiguration, Matthew and Mark says, after six days, conversation, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Luke says, about eight days. After the conversation, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and say, there's a contradiction. Matthew and Mark say six. Luke says eight. But notice Matthew and Mark say after six days, Luke says about eight days. Even on the surface, it's obvious Luke is not trying to be exact. Even by itself, it just makes sense. But it could be that Matthew and Mark are talking about full days. Whereas Luke is talking about the full days plus the partial day before the first one and the partial day after the second one. Okay? So, again, as long as there's a logical and a reasonable explanation that's like not really reaching for it, you know, it isn't a contradiction. And as I said, the different calendar systems and the different ways of uh, keeping track of time and when the day started, when it didn't start, all that kind of stuff. Number seven. There is a lack of understanding of Jewish descriptions or figures of speech. You know, we know about this. Different cultures say things and mean different things. I mean, one of the things I've loved over the last 18 and a half years is to hear some of the Jamaican patois. You know, they start talking and they're talking English, but they're not talking English. (laughs) 
you know, and, 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 and they're saying these statements and these, these sayings and stuff. And it's like the saying is in English with a Jamaican accent. But to understand it from my background, it's like you got to explain that to me. OK, you know, every culture has that. Every culture has that. The Jewish culture has that. All right. It's a great example. I've got again. You can look these up later. But there's a story that's told in Matthew eight, five to 13 and in Luke seven, one to ten. And it's the story about the centurion who has a servant he loves very dearly, and he's sick. He's going to die. So what does he do? Huh? He, what do you say, Carlton? He sends for Jesus' help. How does he send for Jesus' help? So he sends messengers. Well, here's the thing. One of the two, Matthew says... Uh, I mean, uh, Luke says he sends messengers, but Matthew says that he goes to Jesus. Is that a contradiction? One says that he went to Jesus. The other said he sent a messenger. Well, in the Jewish culture at that time and in their culture, it was understood that if you sent a representative, it's as if you're going yourself. And if your representative said something, it's as if you said it yourself. We still have that today in the source sense of an ambassador or the secretary of state. If they speak on behalf of the president, it's as if the president is speaking for themselves. And so that is the example that is there. Chances, in fact, when you compare the two, it actually seems like the centurion sent the representatives, which actually were the Jewish elders, you know, and Jesus started to come, and then it seems like the centurion may have actually met him halfway. But the point is that there's a very logical and reasonable explanation because of the way their culture was. Carlton. Power of attorney. Yeah, very similar. Now we're going to deal with John's question. Okay. We'll read this one. Matthew twelve forty. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Okay, three days and three nights. So if Jesus was crucified and died on Friday and buried... He's in the grave all day Saturday, and he raises from the dead on Sunday. How does that become three days and three nights? Okay, part of the answer is what we were talking about earlier with the timing. The Jewish day begins at sundown. So Jesus died on Friday before sundown. So Friday is one day. And then comes sundown, that becomes Saturday, all day Saturday, that becomes another day, okay? And then Sunday actually begins Saturday night, so there's a third day. But it's still not three full days and full nights. Yeah, Chris? Yeah, Jesus did talk about destroying the temple. If they destroyed the temple, he'd rebuild in three days. But that's just another use of the three days. You know, Jesus said several times that he would raise on the third day. And see, that makes it sound like a contradiction too, because if it's three full days and three full nights, then he'd be raised on the fourth day. But he said on the third day. It all comes down to the how Jewish people express themselves. In the Jewish culture, you could refer... If you a partial day could stand for a full day, okay, um, and especially because their day began began at sundown. You see what I'm saying? 
I'm not explaining this really well. Here's what I'm saying. It was the figure of speech that you could say um, three days and three nights to refer to um, either three 24-hour days in part or in whole. In other words, as long as they included at least a part of a day, in other they weren't real exact about it. When they said three days and three days, they didn't necessarily mean literally three full days and three full nights. You say, well, how can... That sounds, a little, that sounds a little sketchy. But you see it in two other places in Scripture. You can, you can look it up for yourself, but in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 12, David and his army capture this guy, or actually they don't capture him. Um, they're pursuing the army that stole their families, and they come across this servant that's been left behind... And they're having this conversation with him, and they say, well, when did they leave you behind? He says, three days and three nights, but it says on the third day. So the same figure of speech is used there, and the same thing is true in Esther 4.16 and 5.1. It says that they're going to fast and pray for three days and three nights, but yet later it says that on the third day, which would be less than three full days. So it was part of the Jewish figure of speech that they could say that. It was just basically saying, like, you know, any part of three days. There you go, yeah. You check into a hotel, it's got to be after 4, and you're out before 11. Yeah, but that's a day or a night, right? So any partial day could be referred to as, as if it was a whole day. We say, that's silly. But you know what? There's stuff that we say that other cultures look and say, that's silly. Or a hundred years from now, say, that's silly. It's the way our culture refer- refers to things. That's the way the Jewish culture referred to things. Yeah. Janet, you haven't said anything. Go ahead. That it was what? Uh, maybe the day, but they wouldn't count a whole day and night as 12 hours. But it could be that they, that's the way they counted the day. It could be. It could be. The point is that there is a logical and reasonable explanation for that based on their culture and not just that one instant. Because if it was just that one instant, it'd be good. well, somebody made that up to try to explain it away. But the story of David in the Old Testament with this uh, slave that they they came across. And the story in Esther, the same terms are used for the same situation. I know John's got this look on his face like, I don't really get that. I, you know, to me, it's like, that, that doesn't make any sense. But, but that's the way they talked. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Chris, you got to comment. Make it quick because we got to finish up. Also, I think... Yeah, it's interesting how God used all the circumstances. They, didn't, they originally didn't want to arrest Jesus and crucify him on the Passover. They thought there was going to be a big revolt. But they ended up having to. But God orchestrated so the timing was perfect that Jesus died on the Passover. Okay, we need to go on. we got three more. But that was, those were kind of a little bit different. And I may not have explained that as clearly as I would have liked to. But you can look that up and maybe find somebody else that explains it better. But basically, that was a figure of speech that was valid in their culture to refer to that same period of time. Okay? All right, number eight. Different details of an event are described by different people. Different details of an event are described by different people. Let me use an illustration. This did not happen. I'm making it up. But let's say that I had lunch with John today and we talked about cars. But then Tony, before he leads worship, says he had lunch with me today and we talked about gardens. Is that a contradiction? No, it just means that all three of us had lunch together and we talked about a number of things. We talked about cards. We talked about gardens, right? It's just that I was talking about my conversation with John. Tony was talking about his conversation with me about gardens, and I was having a conversation with John about cars, but it's not a contradiction. Most of the facts are totally different other than the fact that I had lunch. 
but they agree, right? And we see some things like that in the Bible. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. On your note sheet, I have there the angels at the tomb of Jesus. How many angels were at the tomb of Jesus on the day of resurrection? Two? Are you sure about that? Well, <laughs> Okay, and I will tell you that this is a big one. Lots of people bring this one up. Matthew says there was an angel outside the tomb. The ladies went and said an angel came down from heaven, rolled away the stone, and sat on the stone. Okay? Mark says there was a young man inside the tomb. Luke says there were two men inside the tomb. John says there were two angels inside the tomb. So were they men? Were they angels? Were they inside? Were they outside? How many were there? Big contradictions, right? It's not a contradiction at all. First of all, when it, the two that said they were young men or men, men, angels are often described as men because that's what they looked like. In fact, in the Old Testament, there were many times that there were angels and they weren't even recognized as angels till later because they looked like men. A uh, little side issue here. People often think that angels have wings. The only angels that have wings in the Bible are the cher- well, that are described as having wings in the Bible are the cherubim in the presence of God. All the other angels that are described as at least coming to earth, they never have wings. They look like people. Okay? So the fact that it says angels and men, that's easily described because those are actually angels that are just described as men. But one said there's one man on the outside, one says there's one on the inside, one says two on the inside. Well, you know what? If there's two on the inside, there's at least one. So in other words, um, which one was it? Mark only mentioned one. Well, he just chose to mention one, but there were two there, but he only mentioned one. Okay? So if you put it all together, there was an angel on the outside because he rolled the stone away and he was sitting there. And plus these events are all happening at different times in the same morning. It could be the angel that came down and rolled away the stone, sat there, Mary showed up, she went to get the guys, the angel left. They came back, they went inside, there's these two inside now. Mark only talks about one, but Luke talks about two, John talks about two. So, at some point there's an angel on the outside, then later on there's two on the inside, but Mark only talks about one of them. Verissa, what were you going to say? Yeah. yeah, actually Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because she wasn't looking directly at him. She's crying, all that kind of stuff. And she's just, somebody's talking. It's like, well, what'd you do with him? And then Jesus said, Mary. And he's, oh, that's Jesus. Yeah. Okay, here's another one. Because we see this happen a lot, especially when you look at the different gospels and what they relate. Okay. What was the name of the blind man that Jesus healed in Jericho? Blind Bartimaeus, right? How many blind men did he heal in Jericho? Two. Did you know that? We often think of blind Bartimaeus, but there are actually two blind men. He did heal another man, a blind man with mud in his eye. Yeah, blind Bartimaeus, he just spoke to him. But anyway, um, when you read the story in Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18, they all three talk about Jesus is on his last approach to Jerusalem. He's going through Jericho. And another interesting fact is that some of them say, or one of them at least says, that... um, um, as Jesus was entering the city, the blind man or blind men were crying out, Jesus, son of David, and blah, blah, blah. Jesus calls him. He heals him. Another one says as Jesus is exiting the city. Well, there's another contradiction. Is it? One, two. Well, again, anytime you got two, you got at least one. Right? Um, I think it, I forgot to write it down. I think Mark is the one that names Bartimaeus. I could be wrong about that. Okay? Um, 
And many scholars believe that Jesus healed two, but Mark knew Bartimaeus. And that's why he mentioned it by name and only focused on him rather than both. But if Jesus healed both, then he definitely healed one, didn't he? Now, as far as whether he's entering or exiting, there's a couple of different possibilities for that. There was the new Jericho. There was the old Jericho. So some have said, well, he was leaving the old Jericho and entering the new Jericho. And that's why it explains why one of them says why he was exiting, why he was entering. There's another theory that when he entered into Jericho, this big crowd, and they're all calling out, and the blind men say, heal me, Jesus, heal me, Jesus. And he didn't stop just then, but he kept on going, and the blind men followed along. They keep crying, and it's not till he leaves that he actually does heal them, and that's why it says when he enters and when he exits. The point is, we may not know exactly how it all worked, but there are several logical, reasonable explanations for what seems to be a contradiction. Let me do the last, oh, uh, uh, that same category, and i got to deal with the last two really quick. Um, we often think of Jesus and the disciples crossing the lake, the storm, and they get to the other side, and they cast the demons out of the demoniac, right? We often focus on the one because that's where the focus is, but there are actually two of them. Look at what some of the Gospels mention one, some mention two. Well, if he cast the demons out of two, he definitely cast them out of one. Again, it's not a contradiction. It's just that some of them decided to focus on the one, Probably the more vocal, the one that spoke the most, the one who said everything. The other one may have been totally silent. Who knows? But he cast it out of two. And not only that, but something similar. When you read the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree and it withers, one of the gospel writers, I think it's Matthew, makes it seem like it happened immediately, whereas another one makes it seem like it happened by the next morning. Again, it's what they're, the way they're, but they don't contradict each other. Okay. All right, let's go on. Get these last two out there. Number nine. General statements are confused with universal ones. General statements basically mean statements that are made that are generally true, but maybe not 100% of the time. Whereas universal statement, statements are 100% true. God is holy and righteous and just. That's a universal statement. But there's a lot of general statements in Scripture, especially in the Proverbs. I like to say, Proverbs are not promises. Okay? They're not promises. They're just basically statements about how life usually works. So when you read a proverb or another statement like that and you say, but that didn't happen for me, that's a contradiction. Or it didn't happen for somebody in the Bible, that's a contradiction. No, it's just stating how life generally works. Two examples, real quick. Proverbs 22, 6. We all know that. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's not a promise. We'd like to believe it is. It's just a, a, a statement of how life generally works. You can look at the Bible, you can see all kinds of people that raised their children up to love and serve God, and they didn't. There's a contradiction. No, that's a proverb. It's not a promise. Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. There's a lot of examples of that in the Bible. It's true. King David, a number of other kings and stuff like that, and other people. But it certainly wasn't true of the Apostle Paul. But that's not a contradiction because a proverb just explains how life usually works. Let me give you the last one, real quick. Number 10, it is not recognized that later revelation supersedes previous revelation. In other words, God reveals things over time, and he adds more and more and more, and God has the right to change the way he deals with people through time. The biggest example, and we'll finish with this, is how God interacts with mankind. You've got the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, preparing the way for Jesus. And the Israelites had to offer sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. But then Jesus came and he became the ultimate sacrifice and no longer did they need to offer sacrifices. And people say, well, there's a contradiction. Old Testament, God requires sacrifices. New Testament, he doesn't. Contradiction, no. 
God changed the way he dealt with people, and that was his plan from all along, that later revelation, it doesn't contradict it, it just goes beyond it. Okay? So, we got to wrap this up. I, I, I was moving on. I thought, hey, we're doing really good. Now we're five minutes late. Anyway, again, the purpose, study these things to give you a greater understanding of and confidence in God's word, and that way you can use people's questions as a way to witness to them. All right? If that stirred your ideas and you can think of other contradictions, let me know. We'll look them up in my books, all right? Father, thank you for this time that we've had together tonight to look at these issues in your, in your word. And God, I thank you. Um, as we finish this kind of four-part mini-series, Are There Errors in the Bible? That we've come to the conclusion there aren't errors in the Bible. There are things that we don't maybe totally understand. There are things that we say, is that a contradiction? And how does that relate to science? How does that relate to this, that, or the other? But Lord, I thank you that we can have confidence that you gave your word. You preserved it through history. You determine which books would be in your word. And they're accurate and we can trust them. And Father, I thank you for that confidence that we can have. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 